Hello, everyone. Alexi the Greek here, welcoming you to another episode of Left Anchor, a podcast about politics, philosophy, and the left. We have today a fun one. Podcaster, professor, author of Story Mode, video games and the interplay between consoles and culture, Trevor Strunk joins us in conversation. And it's a fun one. It's a fun one, especially if you're into gaming. Uh, even if you're not, however, as I am not, you're going to find out quite a lot about this industry, about those who play the games, about how uh, it has evolved over the years and in a way that reflects uh, cultural, political, social shifts. You're going to hear, you know, some Althusser, Lukács, and uh, Frederick Jameson intervening to help us understand uh, the gaming industry and, and various uh, social realities. It's a good time. Before we dive into it, a reminder that Left Anchor is sponsored by the American Prospect magazine. And if you want to support us at patreon.com backslash, backslash left anchor, uh, at the Lieutenant $10 tier, not only do you get the same bonus episodes that you have access to at the $5 tier, but additionally, you also get a free digital subscription to the American Prospect magazine, as well as the opportunity, if you so choose, to purchase a print subscription at a heavily discounted rate. With that said, let's dive right into the conversation with Trevor Strunk. Yeah, and so, you know, th this is a little bit of a, a wonky, you know, it's, uh, interface between the kind of left anchor, you know, uh, 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 audience and hosts. Um, you know, I, th I think I'm not stretching the truth too much to say that Alexi is not too much of a gamer. Uh, I don't know if... Well, oh. well, to be fair, I back in the day, I played, uh, you know... Uh, Jack Madden and Street Fighter 2 and Super Nintendo and before that okay. I had some you know some some classic Nintendo games you know Bo Jackson you know kicking ass on Tecmo and, and <laughs> yeah, some other right you know, on. yeah yeah so you know I I still I am not much of a connoisseur but I still you know play fairly regularly um and so you know going through this book I thought it like an interesting like place to talk about it would be uh the the the, the politics and the mm -hmm. interface of, of of video games and and politics and society, which is like something your book covers very well, um, and maybe you know, the place to get us kind of kicked off is it would be a place where uh, I am totally illiterate as far as having played some of the key uh, entries in the canon, which is the genre of survival horror. Uh, because uh, okay. I'm what Got is it. known as a giant chicken shit who can't take it. <laughs> I can't. Do you like horror movies? No, or he won't go to those either. No, I can't take no, horror no. movies. No. Um, okay, okay. You know, physical danger itself in real life doesn't bother me that much, but uh, horror movies are are unbearable, and horror games are even worse. With with maybe rare exceptions. I don't know. You might say. Well, no, I think, I, I mean, you're not wrong. I think like one of the things about horror games that people uh, find so troubling and, and difficult to to handle is the fact that like you're in them. Yeah. Right. Like, you, you know, you're, you're, you're stuck being part of yeah, it. Yeah. You, um, you can't just sit there and like pull the popcorn bag over your head and wait for the protagonist right. to escape from the chainsaw murderer. You have to pick up the fucking controller and escape or you get disemboweled right. bloodily, you know, and then you have to do it again. But the, there's a genre like I didn't, or sort of a subgenre that I didn't even talk about in the book where uh, 
uh, effectively like um, uh, survival games that rely on hiding. Yeah. Um, so like uh, Clock Tower was a was an early one of this uh, where a guy with a giant pair of scissors was on the PlayStation. He would uh, chase you around uh, the, the eponymous Clock Tower um, and you'd have to find good places to hide or else he'd find you. And uh, there's also like uh, Alien uh, Resurrection. Is that right? Isolation. No, that's the movie. Alien Isolation. Yeah, that's the game. Uh, is the other one like this where like literally you're sort of stuck. Like you just have to find a good hiding space and then wait to see if the AI can find yeah. you. And that to me sounds like it would uh, be your nightmare. But this, you know, you say some interesting stuff in the book um, about, you know, uh, uh, it, it, the, the type of games that I like to play, you know, like are, I think you could often characterize them as like sort of imperialist, you know, it's like like you you are dropped into a space X guy like yeah, Starcraft type shit. You, okay. you, you know, you, you're dropped into a space, you know, you, uh, you know, build up it. You you control and like the, the it's a very, you know, kind of power fantasy type of thing where you are you are uh, uh the to the commander that like uh, the game city skylines if you've ever played that one a city builder mm-hmm. game where really? you it's like a communist dictatorship and you could do whatever you want in this in this city you know as long as you have the resources um sure and uh uh you know that that in a way it's like you could sort of draw some easy um you know ways in which that kind of reinforces like right-wing politics but survival horror to me is interesting because it is not really a a power fantasy and, and no. it's sort of a disempowerment fantasy. And so like, can you, can you speak a little bit about like how that, I mean, first of all, you know, give us a little, uh, a, a overview of like maybe a, a game or two in the, what's, what a uh, survival horror is all about and maybe how that sort sure. of like the, the, the way that might uh, translate politically. Right on. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I'll, I'll sort of start with is actually uh, there's a, there's a wonderful YouTuber, um, who I've had on the show. Um, I don't know if they, I don't know what, if they're, they're still putting out stuff or not, to be honest with you, but uh, I'm pretty sure they are, um, called do not eat. Uh, I don't know if you guys yeah. are familiar with uh, them or not. Uh, but do not eat, uh, does city skylines, YouTubes and essentially does them, um, from a left-wing perspective, sometimes showing the history of places that have built and sometimes sort of building his own sort of like, you know, communist utopia sort of place, but with the sort of problems of every day. So I, I think, you know, it's important to sort of take that approach because games themselves are ultimately, you know, this is something that I really pushed back against because, sure, I, you know, in, in my, in my, um, in my academic life before writing the book, I hated the idea of audience participation. Like I hated it. I just thought, you know, like why bring the audience into it at all? It's me, the critic and the author. Those are like the only people that matter. Um, it turns out you can't really do that in video games. Like you have to bring the audience in. Like you can't like yeah. it's participation, like participation exists. Um, and so, you know, when you're thinking about participation in a video game, um, ultimately like any sort of message that the game has is at the risk of being totally skewed and misinterpreted by the, by the, um, uh, player, but you know, for good or for ill. Um, and in survival horror, I think this is like, you know, it's funny because there are, um, you know, survival horror, specifically like the uh, the Resident Evil games. Those would be sort of the tentpole. Uh, the not the first to ever come out because you can look at things like uh, Alone in the Dark, which I cover in the book, um, and even sort of go further back. Um, there's a there's a, a sort of like much lesser known uh, RPG that 
Resident Evil is kind of uh, based off of, uh, you know, stuff like that. But really, um, Alone in the Dark, Resident Evil, um, and, and probably the Silent Hill games are the ones that are most foundational. And the idea, of course, in these games and, you know, other lesser known games like Dino Crisis or Parasite Eve or, you know, you can look at any number of games. I mean, you could rattle off a bunch of games for you, I guess, um, which is great radio. Uh, but, you know, the the um, you know, the 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 element of survival hard, the survival part, right, is that you have, as you say, in the, in the city builders, limited resources. You have to make choices. <clears throat> and if you make the wrong choice, you might find yourself in a situation that you can't survive in, right? You don't have enough ammo. You don't have enough food, right? Um, what I find interesting about that, so in the book, I talk a lot about how that sort of um, represented a, a particular kind of fear, right? A, a fear of loneliness, a fear of being left behind, a fear of isolation. Um, and particularly in the Silent Hill games, this comes through where, you know, you are looking for in these games – one you know human given human in any game your wife your daughter whatever um and uh all you find are monsters monsters everywhere right like like horrible obviously inhuman monsters um and so you are human and everyone else is inhuman um and this shifts after 9-11 as i say in the book just like I, i'm so bad at like promoting myself i just i have to force myself to do the thesis every time um <laughs> it changes after 9-11 to sort of be this fear of being overrun right um, Resident Evil Four introduces like zombie hordes effectively, and so after that, it's it's off to the races. Like it, zombies are everywhere. You have enough ammo, but can you can you avoid being overrun? Um, and you know, like the difference I think between something like Resident Evil that's scary and something like say House of the Dead, which you've probably seen like you know out and about if you've ever been in an arcade uh, with light guns and stuff. It's like fun little roller coaster sort of a rail shooter. Uh, the difference is that you have to make the choice and you have to sort of like be the one allocating resources. It's not unlimited ammo. It's not how well, how well you can aim. It really is not so much a performance-based thing until like, you know, second, third, fourth playthroughs. It is truly like, you know, do you have the planning skills and the instincts to survive the situation? And, you know, one of the things I think is, is key about doing left-wing readings of these games is understanding them within their historical context. Because of course, like, you know, and I say left wing readings because I don't want to claim any of these games are like left wing or right wing. It's it's yeah. it's a right. very it's, tricky proposition. Because if I got it right, Trevor, you're doing an analysis of how art in the form of uh, video gaming, right, is tracking. I mean, like as you know, leftists we're, we're materialists, so so we we yep. we we look at how you know us uh, you know. <laughs> Based superstructure, right? like how how kind of material conditions give rise to uh, cultural, uh, you know, ideas as well as meaning making systems and and, and yep. personal, like the different kinds of angst or fears, right? So can can you maybe um, you know return back for just a quick moment how you tracked the kind of over so many different games within a genre how the kind mm -hmm. of uh, fear that you experience as the user right uh becomes more certain kinds of fears become more popular in a way that seems yeah. to track the kind of alienation or fear that uh our our realities uh you know uh were like in neoliberalism of the 90s versus you know post 9/11 right yeah no absolutely i think like you know part of it for me was going into uh was going into these like um Reviews of the game, like like contemporary reviews of the game, because you can find tons of people talking about Resident Evil One now, right? Like, oh, here's what the game is about, or here's what like, you know, X, Y, or Z meant to me when I played it as a you know twelve year old. Um, but in the reviews of the time, 
the generally the way that they are experiencing the game is more as you say alexi like the 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 materialism of the thing right like you actually sort of get to experience what in that moment in history they are thinking about the concept of like a zombie game or something scary or whatever right um and and what you find is that like the ads, the things like, you know, the, the very idea of the game, the fact that like one of the first ones was alone in the dark, right? Like literally like what is the worst thing that can happen to you? You can be alone in the dark. Um, whereas like, you, you know, you you sort of like look at later horror games and they are reviewed, they are advertised, they are sort of billed as, hey, there are these people that are going to get you. Like, the you know, I, I use Resident Evil 7 as a as a touch point in the in the book because it really is a fascinating shift on the first one the first game you are in a mansion you're you break in with like a SWAT team basically um you play as a cop so you know and, you know as 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 many people on twitter would say like you know ACAB means uh means, means resident evil so you know just like uh mark 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 your mark your books um but like you know, it's 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 you play as these cops that are in this in this place, and they're way over their head, right? They 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 run into these monsters, and they you know they think it's just a crime scene, and it's something way more, and they're immediately in over their head. And so that's like that's the way it's advertised. You know, you're in there, you get in. Can you survive? Can you survive? Being sort of like the central you know advertising and review point. Um, whereas in Resident Evil Seven, you know, your guy goes in and sort of just like ends up in this house with this family. That they're zombies of a of a type, but they're also intelligent. They can speak to you. They 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 can torture you. You see like um, flashbacks of their lives and how they got there, and that kind of like interiority, right, is what's built in these games, right? Like the the um, the the theme song to Resident Evil Seven is like this plaintive folk melody, right? Sort of slowed down and made creepy, and it, it's this way that like you get the first one is can you survive, and the second one is um, you know what is the situation? Who are these people? How do they relate to you? Can you like survive other people basically? And so that, that kind of like, you know, honestly, like what you can find with just like looking at the reviews and the, um, the history of the game itself. I mean, a lot of that I found very useful in uh, not so much the survival horror, but um, absolutely the, the first person shooter and the metal gear solid chapters um, just, you know, reading about the development of these games, reading about how they were, were put out, reading about how people experienced them in the time. Like you do get to see the way that these things develop without kind of understanding or having that hype train that has made them classics of the moment. Right. Like looking back in 1999, now people have a lot of nostalgia. So you get people saying things like, man, I wish I was back in like Bill Clinton's second term or whatever. Um, <laughs> whereas if you read some newspapers at the time, it doesn't, uh, doesn't paint as far as a picture. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, honestly, I was surprised at how much, you know, again, coming from an a academic perspective, I use some theory in there, but really very little. And like, I was surprised how much I, I got out of just kind of digging in the archive a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, um, <clears throat> it's a, it's a fascinating bit. And, and I think it kind of lead, you know, what we were talking about leads kind of nicely into uh, another one of your chapters in which you are, uh, talking about uh, Fallout Three versus a, a a Japanese the Fallout series rather versus a Japanese <laughs> series, uh, Shin Megami Tensei. I may be pronouncing yep, yep. that wrong. No, you got it. That's oh, good. Nice, <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. and 
If you want, you can call it Mega Ten. That's what a lot of people in the uh, in the states call Mega it. Ten. The so yeah. first of all, I there there's a there's a great thing in your book here, which which I had not heard of before, but I think is highly relevant, even if you don't care about video games at all. You 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 excavate a little piece of history about a famous saying that it goes around on mm-hmm. the left that it's like it's easier mm-hmm. to imagine the the end of the world than the end of capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And and you. Um, what was that guy's name? I, I, I didn't write well, Frederick it Jameson. So I had heard that it was either Frederick Jamer, Jameson or Slavoj Zizek that said it. Um, but but tell, maybe tell us what you found so here with it the history. Albert Einstein. So it's really, yeah, it's interesting. So I've, I've, I've done this before. Like I've, I've looked, I've, I've, I've rehearsed this argument in, in academic papers before too. Um, let's see. I'm, I'm going to look at, I'm going to look up the actual thing because it, it's, it's, um, it's like, it's pretty interesting. So it's this review of a, of a thing called Future City. Uh, by uh, it's a review by Frederick Jameson, and Jameson starts off. I just want to get its phrasing right. Uh, Jameson starts off with, it, "Oh, it's from it's from the New Left Review," um, and he begins by saying, "That's not what I care about. I care about this." Um, he begins by saying, "You know, like someone has said." It has been said at some point, like it's very sort of like airy. It's like, you know, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. heard from someone at some point from somewhere. Yeah. It's like that. a hom- Homeric oral history, you know? What I mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like before Zizek was really writing, it's it's definitely from Jameson. I've heard the Zizek thing too, though. And like it, it it's funny because people will get mad and say like, no, Jameson said it. And it, it's not even that. It's that Jameson said someone said it, right? Um like no one's really all that interested in Future City. No one's the actual sort of like content of the article is almost lost to time. It, it literally is that aphorism that he cannot even place that is like the most important thing to people, and people will like repeat it ad nauseum uh, because I mean it's 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 illustrative in a certain way. It's also like yeah. you know fairly, and I, I compare it to um, uh, this. <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember this album, but the Power Man 5000 album, uh, their first album, uh, Rob Zombie's brother, I think, or cousin or something was in Power Man 5000. Jeff and, Zombie? Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, there you go. I've heard of Power, <laughs> Power Man 5000, but it- there's a there's a there's an intro. I'm sure I'm sure if uh, if uh, Brian Quimby listens to this from uh, from Street Fight, he'll uh, he'll have he'll have a, a long like he'll definitely do like a thing where it's like you know thread one out of eight. Like, yeah, just you know talking about these inaccuracies. Uh, but um, there's a part at the beginning of their album where they uh, they have this reading. It's basically you know they hired. Uh, some you know low rent uh, Christopher Lee uh, to do a reading of that's like very you know profound uh, sounds like about the mysteries of space or whatever. And um, they had an interview with the band and they were like, people were like, where'd you get that monologue? And, and they said, yeah, we found this book and, and uh, it was at a thrift store and no one had ever heard of it before. We, we lost it. So we can't find it anymore, but it was like really crazy. And I told my dad about it. And I think I say this in the book. I told my dad about it and he was like, Trevor, they made that up. It's like that, not real. It's that's not a real reference. Like they didn't, they didn't actually find that book, and I was like, "Oh no, it, they, they lied." And it's much the same with Jameson, and I think like you know, really digging into that is it's a super interesting question why Jameson wouldn't just say it, right? Yeah. Like yeah, if he doesn't yeah. have the if he doesn't have the reference, why would he do that? And like it, it always it always struck me, and I think like I don't know if I say this explicitly in the book or not. It's been a while since I've read that reread that chapter. But like it is something so fuzzy and upsetting and tricky about apocalypse that I think like also triggers that that desire to distance oneself, right? 
like that that way of being like someone said this not me like, yeah i don't want to i don't want to like bring the this nuclear is warfare this is a little too hot to handle <laughs> right yeah, yeah. Well, and yeah. i don't know if you know fred jameson but he like he's a very good scholar but uh there's a reason they call him like the grandpa of the left. Like he's <laughs> the, mostly just a really sweet the guy. The thing that, in, that 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 interests me though that I wanted to drill down on especially, that's all that's all was, great history. Uh but was this this following sentence he, that he says to, uh uh quoting your your book here. We can now he says, quote, witness the attempt to imagine capitalism by way of imagining the end of the world. So like turning mm-hmm. that yeah. sort of logically right. on its head. Yeah. And that kind of feeds into, you know, your chapter on the Fallout series and on the uh uh Shin Megami Tensei, whatever I've met. I like that you have to keep reading it actually. I was gonna remind you of what it's good, but like no. what a lot of people would. I no, like, it, you gotta I like take you have a, to say just, it. Yeah. Just like Alexi, just let me strip over my own feet and every <laughs> It's gonna be so exciting. Every, it, do you do you do a lot of episodes where like uh Alexi could give you uh better examples of like how to pronounce he's, things? And, he's like, sworn to secrecy. Just, I mean, this is a left acre promise. I will butcher the pronunciation of something on every episode. Every episode, yeah. But <laughs> you you have you you have and um I think one of the the most insightful sentences, you know, not to butter you up too much, but one of the most no, insightful please. sentences about the difference between the Japanese uh, gaming industry and the American gaming industry. You know, there's a lot of people who talk about how wacky, you know, Japanese media is. It is kind of wacky in many ways. And like, you know, we're doing cultural essentialism, race science, Charles Murray shit. You know, it can easily fall into like cultural so, but there, sure. there is a difference there. You know, you, you, you do see a lot of, of, of stuff that, you know, Japan does things differently. It's, it's, it's industry is set up in a much different way than, than, than the American games industry, et cetera, et cetera. For sure. But you, you, uh, contrasting these stories, you say, quote, I think the strangeness of the series has little to do with the way in which it is Japanese and much, much more to do with the way it is not American. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The, the, again, with reference to you know comparing the Fallout series and the Shin Megami Tensei series, and so can you like unpack that for us a little bit? And like, what sure. what are you what are you talking about? Like, what is the sort of controversy there? So it, you know, it. I I'm glad you sort of brought up the 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 contrast between like you know the wackiness of Japanese. Uh, uh, art, animation, video games, whatever, versus versus American, because it, it one of the things that I think makes us as Americans very uncomfortable when seeing like, you know, weird stuff from other countries or quote unquote weird stuff from other countries is that we as a culture are very committed to realism. Like realism is just like absolutely what we love, even in our fantastical shows. Like you take something like Game of Thrones and it's like, yeah, no, it's like, oh, it's wow. It's so like so high, far flung and wild. And but mostly like it's just like kings and queens and they're fighting each other. Like it's <laughs> it's it's like there is this core of realism to like most everything we we consume. And, you know, there are in, in other countries, there's this sort of surrealist vibe that is in a lot of even like mainstream television. Like you look at something like even even the British. Right. Um, the fact that life on Mars uh, which flopped here in America, but is like one of their like most beloved detective series um, takes place. And it's uh, the plot is a, a 
modern day London detective travels back in time to 1975 and has to like solve crimes and figure out why he's there. Like that, even that kind of concept, right. It's a little too spicy for American TV. It's like, well, well, why is he there? Like, what are we doing here? And like, so like the, it, it goes into the games as well. And like, you know, it isn't, it isn't to say something bad about fallout. Like fallout is actually a pretty interesting game. And, and particularly the first few, um, where we get the the kind of like what's called CRPG or um, uh, 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 isometric view RPGs, which is like if you ever made a diet for people who aren't fans of video games, um, Alexi, I'm talking to you here. Uh, yes, you RPG know, like, is role playing game, right? Am I, yeah, I you know? got it. <laughs> okay. Well, because yeah. you're you're, a, you're an avid you're an avid Dungeons and Dragons guy, so I figured <laughs> it would right, be okay. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but isometric basically is like if you've ever made a diorama. Like if you look at the diorama and like the ground sort of seems like uh, where's my camera like tilted right, um, so you can see everything right. So it's sort of like if you if you look at like Sid Meier games, they're isometric or Civilization or or anything. Like, City Skylines is is isometric in some ways. Sim City, if you ever played that, um, but essentially you get to see the whole world and it's it's you know God's eye view, right? Kind of yeah, right. A little bit, yeah. uh, but close enough um, to the ground that you don't have to squint. But the you know, like the Fallout series is very much that isometric view. You see everything. It's the the problem of the series is like, okay, nuclear war happened long enough ago that the the trauma of it is essentially, you know, old hat. Um, how are you going to survive? You're you're you know, Fallout One famously starts with you know your your little pod, your your vault needs a new water purifier, so go find one. Um, and you can mess up and like not get one in time and then your vault dies and that's how you lose the game, right? Like <laughs> there's all sorts of problems and they're very realistic problems if you were in a, if you were in an apocalypse. And all of the sort of commentary that is in Fallout is about that, right? Like you run into people who run their shanty towns like crime organizations or you run into people who like want to take over the world by force or like you look at something like Fallout New Vegas, which is the most sort of like politically transient of the series. And and you get people like who who are essentially fascists and who are essentially trying to do like you know liberal democracy and essentially trying to do like a very watered down version of social democracy, which is not a critique of Josh uh, Sawyer, who's a, a, a you know full disclosure we we uh, were acquaintances, we've done many shows together, but like um, him or Obsidian or any of the people who are involved in that, like it's more just like it doesn't fit in the Fallout universe to have like a far left uh, group. Um, but, you know, the, there are these sort of factions and you can say like, oh, those represent versions of what would happen today, right? It is There's no metaphor there. Whereas in Shin Megami Tensei, it's all metaphor, right? Like the world's ended, but like in, you know, probably the most played one is uh, Shin Megami Tensei 3 Nocturne. Uh, the world ends in a in a really sort of strange, like you meet your teacher, you know, you, you find your teacher at, she's at this hospital where your friend is also at. He's like been in an accident or something. And, no, I'm sorry. She, your teacher's been in an accident. You're all going to visit her. And uh, while you're there, someone uh, uses a computer essentially to summon demons, which is a, a very, you know, that's in all of them. They use computers to summon demons. Um, and uh, those demons get summoned and uh, the world ends. You also kind of become a demon that's unique to three. Uh, but essentially the world's over in a flash. Right. And everyone you run into after that point is a demon. Um, in Shin Megami Tensei 4, there's this like 
this upper world you start off in, which is very sort of pastoral. It feels like you're in 12th century England or something. And then you find out there's a lower world, which is modern Tokyo. And it's, of course, overrun with demons. There are more people there. But, like, these are not games about, like, the real world. They're about, like, you know, the real world as if uh, it was infested with a kind of, like, magical thinking or magical logic. Um and as a result, the way that Shin Megami Tensei is, is, is un-American is in two ways. One, it is not optimistic, particularly about like maintaining the social order. The choices you get to make in, in Shin Megami Tensei are essentially to align with God or the devil, for like, you know, whether or not literally that you, you can, you can kill God, you can kill the devil, or you can take what the game perceives as the best route and take a neutral route, right? Um, and as a result, that's sort of like resetting. Right? You, you get to reset. You get to do something different. Um, world still ended, but you're moving on to something else. Whereas Fallout is all about maintaining. It's all about like, you know, mm-hmm. capitalism comes back. You have these little chips you can spend and stuff like that, yeah, right? Interesting. Um, and so like the metaphor of the demon allows the Japanese game to kind of think past its current social world. Like you can you can imagine the end of capitalism via apocalypse if you imagine apocalypse to be something new. Right. But if you imagine Apocalypse to be a repetition of the of the past in a certain way, which, you know, one has to if you do realism. So because you have to sort of have some basis for that reality. That's interesting. Yeah. And I like so so let's talk about this a bit more, because usually, you know, the the idea for radicals who think insofar as they think that we have the agency to create the future. Right. Uh, Caveats all apply. Right. But Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. usually maybe utopian thinking is kind of the, the, the way that that people try to get. Uh, to to that result, but but you're showing how kind of dystopian or uh, apocalyptic uh, worlds are, are a way to to do that, and I, I like yeah. this contrast. This is really interesting, and and also it shows the problem with uh, how you envision the problems and how that could be an obstacle, right? To their absolutely, overcoming. yeah, and like it it is like it's a. I mean, you, you can see it in the book. Uh, I'm like I'm a big believer in dialectics. I. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike, unlike some, Mar- I, I, unlike, I don't know if this is a, a I don't know if this, you, either of you ever tweeted something like this. Um, I'm not referring to you. If, if, <laughs> if I do accidentally refer, it's an accident. Uh, but you know, like I, I'm not the kind of person who, you know, gets mad and says like, ah, oh, dialectics is all made up. It's just stuff that like yeah. Marx added to sound smart or whatever. Like it's yeah. garbage. Like I've seen that from like purportedly left thinkers. And like to me, you know, fine, it's an academic argument, whatever. But like, uh, to me, dialectics is like a super important element of thinking left. Like you have to be able to see transformation by way of synthesis. Right. And so like when you're thinking about dystopia in a dialectic sense, dystopia is just simply utopia from like, you start looking at it differently and you're like, Oh, this is all so bad. And you're like, well, but we eliminated all the other bad stuff. Right. So like, actually, if we like, this is this is simply the process of becoming. Utopia and dystopia are like in synthesis. Uh, so dialectics uh, one hundred and one opposite two opposites look th- look different. You look at them closely enough, they start to appear to be the same thing. Synthesize into something new. So um, the famous one master and slave. Uh, master looks like he has control over the slave. Slave looks like he's being bound by the master. But if you look at it carefully enough, it's actually the slave has power over the master because if the slave left, then the master would have no one to do their labor. And you sort of 
break down instead of getting they're, they're power the ones relations, totally dependent. Get, actually, right? Actually, it's, correct. It's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So instead of power relations, you I mean, this is true of labor the, relations. The capitalists are totally dependent mm-hmm. on the workers. You know, it seems yep. like they they do 100%. dominate all all of us all the time. But at the other hand, we have all the power because they totally rely on us. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And so, like, you know, it's it it is uh, Althusser says this about just a just to prove that I I kept the I kept the theory out on purpose, guys. I I, I know it. I promise. <laughs> Althusser says a theory friendly that, theory friendly pod. Oh, thank God. Uh, so Louis Althusser <laughs> says in in reading Marx that um uh he says uh, you know Marx operates by aporias, leaving things out like uh, and filling aporias. So like finding things within a text that that need to be filled in. And so he uses uh, Adam Smith as an example. And Adam Smith talks about uh the the uh, buying and selling labor. And um, much like Marx himself, uh, Althusser is not anti-Adam Smith. Adam Smith is actually a pretty interesting economic thinker, uh, but both would agree that he has his limits, right? And sort of like is too kind of into capitalism, for lack of a more intelligent way to say that. Um, and Althusser says like what Marx was able to do is say, you know, when when Smith says uh, we can purchase labor – Marx sees the gap there and says, like, actually, what he means to say is we can purchase labor power, right? right? And so labor power is the is essentially that synthesis where you take uh, master and slave and you say, like, actually, wait, the master really relies on the slave a lot. And you say, like, that's a kind of power, too. It's labor power. And then you, you kind of move on from there, right? Um, and I think, like, you know, one of the things that Shimagami Tensei does really well, and I I haven't played five yet. So, you know, anyone who's played five who disagrees, you know, feel free to chime in um, uh, on Twitter. I'm not assuming you guys have played <laughs> Shin Megami Tensei five, but um, uh, Shin Megami Tensei four is really interesting this way. Cause in the end of the game, like if you take the neutral route, you kind of end up with like a bunch of survivors, like a really strange ragtag group. And you know, the, the, there's a dome over Tokyo in case the U S fires missiles. There's all these like problems going on, but like you essentially get to a point where everyone's just kind of like, all right, well, I guess this is our situation that we're going to rebuild in. And it is sort of like, it's a happy ending in a very, very unhappy situation. And the representation of that, I think is really important for understanding, like moving on. Cause uh, you know, practically speaking, whenever there are left solutions to stuff, the thing all the critics from the center to the right will say is, well, you know, imagine what's going to happen if you put that into place. Like, you know, this, how are you going to get this? And how are you going to get that? What are you going to do with this? And, you know, what I think the not natural way to, to respond to that is like, no, we'd get this this way or we get this that way. Like I saw a, I saw like an anarchist talking point, um, no, no shade uh, to the anarchist talking point, but like, uh, you know, where they were just like, well, how someone was like, well, you won't have supply chains without a state. And they were like, sure, I'll have a supply chain. I grow beans in my backyard and then I have beans to eat. And it's like, okay, look, like that's not – that's a very funny thing to say. But that's not the point, right? Like that's not – Yeah. the point is you won't have supply chains. And so you have to kind of break that down and say like, yeah, like what what do we lose and what do we gain? And I think that's like a super important way of thinking about both, you know, the end of the world in a bad way and the end of the world in a good way. And this I think, you know, you you, you – mentioned how um the you know america american games media is sort of transfixed by this sort of realism but i think you just mm-hmm. pointed to how that is is kind of a a a, a sort of health uh, a self hypnosis uh for lack mm-hmm. of a better word 
um, you know, the p- people sort of mistaking like current circumstances for an unar- unalterable uh, reality that, um, you know, if there is the end of the world, uh, that, that could take, you know, many different forms and it wouldn't just be the case that like you sort of have the same sort of optimistic Hollywood tropes where you sort of get the good ending if you're a nice little boy and you do all the nice things. And like it's, it's, it's in a sense more realistic. You, you like in terms of the space of possibilities anyway, to, to, I mean, maybe not in the sense of demons and whatnot, but like, <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know if you see what they're doing. Yeah, on computers these days. yeah right. Little little Donald Trump Jr. Jr. is running around nipping at our I was going to say, I mean, you know, Americans have such a positive imagination. We couldn't even imagine Donald Trump and he's he's a real person. You can't even- <laughs> like- I think I think the problem with realism in that way is like, you know, to, to sort of like put on another hat and defend realism like uh, 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 Herr Glukach talks a lot about realism, um, the, the Soviet thinker. And like, you know, there's a lot to say good and bad about Herr Glukach, but like the one of the best pieces of, of criticism he has is called, I think it's called realism in the balance. And it's the, the, the wonderful thing from that, that I always, I always tell people and sometimes people who just like would be desperate that I stop talking about theory. Um, so certainly not you two, uh, <laughs> but you know, it's, is that like, he, he looks at, um, he looks at like thinkers and, and he's very critical of, um, up to Sinclair in this essay. He doesn't like Sinclair. He thinks like muckraking doesn't work because uh, basically of what we're saying there, it identifies like a particular problem and it's just like, it's pure politics. It's not aesthetics. It, it doesn't, it doesn't open up like kind of a world of imagination. Now I'm, I'm more sympathetic to Sinclair than he is. I don't want to, I don't mean to, to malign Upton Sinclair, really interesting stuff. And like, you know, particularly yeah. now, um, but he points instead to Tolstoy and says, you know, Leo Tolstoy is a dyed in the wool capitalist. Like, Totally into the ruling, you know, absolutely pro SAR, like whatever, right? But excuse me, he says Tolstoy is a better artist, and actually, as a better artist, represents anti capitalism. He doesn't use those words, but essentially, like you know, the, the possibility of a Soviet future or whatever, uh, more successfully because he portrays the totality of society, right? And he uses this example of. It's it's a, one of his lesser books. It's not War and Peace or Anna Karenina, where like he says, like you know, it's it's a judge or no, a lawyer talking to the wife of a judge, and and he's been trying so hard to get this man acquitted of a crime he didn't do, right? And and, and every part of the system's working against him. And the wife says to him, like he's just talking to her, and she goes, "Oh, I'm sure I could get my my husband to 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 look at that if you come to this party we're at tonight. Like you know, just just come on by. There's an invitation. Like you know, I'm sure we can talk to him there." And what Lukacs says is in that moment of realism, right? Like it's a realistic conversation, but the the interconnected gears of society become immediately clear, right? You you yeah. get to see how things work. The, the the veil is pulled back, and it's like, oh, it is not a matter of the courts; it's a matter of who you know. And so, like that yeah. is, yeah. I, I think, like that version of realism that is very much historically based, that imagines, like, uh, you know a subject that exists within a historical or an historical like continuum yeah. uh, can be really, really positive. I also think that that's something that is not particularly popular in American media. Uh, you yeah. Know, outside Russian of, like, particular American sense. Russian realism is a very different beast than American real. You know, I feel like a, American- well, especially contemporary American realism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
American realism is like the good guy wins and gets the girl. And it's, and I mean, it's like Hollywood cliches, you know, I mean, but to varying degrees, they're, they're smarter. Yeah. I mean, dumber versions of there's this, there's but. good stuff like there's you know there's um oh boy uh well i mean you can even take stuff like poe like the gold bug or something like uh 19th to 20th century realism is, is pretty interesting that way and can get into like some really you know clever stuff in terms of uh, uh what am i thinking of um sister carrie by uh, uh ted dreiser theater dreiser um it's not the most exciting book in the world but it's very realistic and it's ultra depressing um <laughs> but like you know, these are realistic historical moments, but I think because America is essentially a fairly young nation, when it can still kind of perceive its founding and understand its kind of like liminal sense as a, as a nation, that's more possible. But once you get to the point where like, you know, let's even put a name on it and say post bicentennial, at that point, you're, you're kind of in the, in the world of, as you say, Ryan, like this Hollywood version of, of America where it has always existed, will always exist and will always win. Um, and, and that, that does not, uh, that's not an environment for, for realism in any, you know, useful sense. Now, what Trevor did you find? Cause I, I can't escape the theory. I just can't here. So, so the, the, the dialectic <laughs> in another way, the dialectic that you find between, um, you know, the, the creators and the gamers, the, the gamers and, and the, you know, the, those who design the games and so forth. Um, maybe sure. talk a bit about that and, and, and what you yeah. noticed in that dialectic. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I was like, so when I started writing the book, I'll, I'll take you, um, not behind the scenes, but like a little more, uh, granular than I, I would usually, um, you know, the, so Ryan, you and I share an, a literary agent, um, it's true. It's the, yeah, the Eric Hain, who's, who's a lovely, lovely person. Um, and a, a, also a good agent, but you know, obviously the person stuff is more important. Um, but he, uh, he really helped me kind of like form my ideas and, 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 you know, in talking with him and the, not my ideas, but like the structure of like my pitch, let's say, um, and in talking with him and the, uh, the publisher, Publisher was like, oh, you know what I'm super interested in? I'm super interested in Twitch. Like, what's this Twitch thing about? Like, it's pretty interesting. And I was like, okay, like, I guess I can talk about Twitch. And so, like, I was thinking about Twitch and I was like, how do I shoehorn this into the book as it stands? Like, what's this going to look like? And I realized, like, okay, the basic point of Twitch is that it is a place where you get to blur the line between, like, creator and consumer, right? Like, I, I don't know if I say this exactly, but, like, you take someone like Tyler Blevins, like Ninja, who effectively is his own ecosystem of content. And in some ways, he's like just as much a creator of Fortnite as the creators of Fortnite are, right? Because he's presented it to, to kids in a particular way that has appealed to them and whatever, right? Um, and in thinking about that, it's like, well, you know, the actual sort of like creative economy in in gaming has has never been too far from that. Like Twitch gives us a really easy way to, to approach it for the same reason that we can all talk to each other. Now we have like easy access to streaming, easy access to audio that is cheap, uh, relatively speaking, uh, easy access to video, uh, particularly Twitch. Like you don't need any fidelity, so you can watch it on your phone. Um, you can watch it anywhere you want. And like, so, you know, that easy access makes it different, but not it just, just in intensity, not in type, because of course you had all these fan magazines, you had all these, um, you know, ways of, of, of reaching out to a producer or a director. And in fact, you know, like, lest it be forgotten, these are 
objects that are supposed to be bought and sold, right? Like they are determined upon capitalists. Wait a minute. Metrics. Wait a minute. There are commodities involved here. What are you talking yeah, I'm about? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, this whole I'll time leave. we thought this was the one decommodified uh, uh, industry sorry. here. No, it's hyper commodified. <laughs> And but yet like, there's yeah, community. No. So, so mm-hmm. cause here's here. I know I, I'm interrupting you in the middle of a no, cool little that's spiel, but, but like the way that commodification is so key to, to the industry and yet the way that the commodity has to at times be the community, uh, who mm-hmm. sometimes are observing, sometimes are participating, sometimes both. Um, you, you have an interesting, you know, uh, intervention here because Maybe this isn't just, you know, re- reaffirming, recapitulating uh, the problems of commodification and capitalism. Maybe there's something here that could that could be give the left a, a, a way forward despite the money being made. Right. Yeah, no, for sure. Because, I mean, it, it's this way that like you sort of observe the way that that there is. Uh, so this is why I did series. Right. Um, take Metal Gear, for instance, is, is, a, is a wonderful example where like um you can trace the way that Kojima, Hideo Kojima, the creator of the Metal Gear series, talks about his games and the way that the games actually function um, and the way that that changes in one moment, particularly after Metal Gear Solid 2, based on fan outrage. Right. And so, like, essentially, you're creating something for a community and the community is with you. That's great. And you can create how you want. And when the community rebels against that, you have a choice. You can either push through it as, as like, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. I, I guess like final fantasy 14 is an interesting example because they, it's an um, MMORPG that was a flop at first. And then they decided to make it better and still do the MMO. So it changed and, and moved on. A, or uh, what, neon Genesis Evangelion. That's a sort of fan backlash and then backlash oh, to the, yeah. The, the, Ryan, this is, was that you trying to say a Greek name? I, I caught the vague outline of a Greek name. Is that what was the that? <laughs> uh, uh, listeners may know this, but they're they're just just to reference quickly. There's an anime series called Neon Genesis Evangelion uh, that like there's a officials a series that ended in a sort of unsatisfying way for a lot of fans, and you know there's a lot of protests and backlash and. Uh, the uh, uh, creator of the the director or whatever the show ex- uh, responded by like sort of doing a like sort of cog slap, you know, just just doubling down in a sense. Yeah, like, Hideki Anno does not care about yeah, his audience. Yeah, like there yeah. are people who just do not care. Yeah, there's a uh, the 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 developer of um, Bayonetta and uh, and the other Platinum games, really really you know great action game developer. Uh, has like half of Twitter blocked because if you if you question anything, he's like, I hate you and blocked. <laughs> uh, and like and sometimes, like he blocked his own publisher, like he blocked Pat Platinum Games, and he's like, I, I don't want to deal with you guys anymore. Um, but like you know, it it is this way that like you know you're you're it's an artistic watershed in some ways because you are set with like even in ways that films weren't prior to Marvel and still aren't you know, during the kind of like comic book uh, supremacy moment um, where like you are set with this massively expensive object, right? If you are creating a triple A game, it's multiple hundreds of millions of dollars in in many cases. And so like you got to make your money back uh, or else you're not going to be asked to develop a game again. But also in order to make your money back, you might have to respond to audience demands which in many cases aren't going to be aligned with your political or aesthetic ideas. And so sometimes 
people don't respond and, and just keep going and, uh, you know, it works well or it doesn't work at all. Um, and then sometimes they change. And so that changing both tells us like, okay, you know, looking at the way that a, a series starts and a series ends lets us know the ways that it's become either, you know, more reactionary or in some cases more progressive and interesting and, and emancipatory. Um, and also kind of like how the community around it has, again, like some communities will, take an object and, and I, I won't lie, like in gaming, most communities are reactionary. So most communities will take an object and, you know, complain that it isn't, you know, uh, I think like a central complaint is that like, oh, you took out, like you took out the, the visible nipples in my game. Like how, how dare you? Like, you know, <laughs> the American release doesn't have, you know, the American release is like the breasts are not big enough and I am, I am losing my mind. Um, I'm gonna suicide and, bomb the headquarters of the company. Yeah, I, honestly, like the, there, there's so many American gamers who get like truly, truly. You've never seen anger like there's this. not enough um, breasts online, and I must have more. Yes. <laughs> I was gonna what say, is the, what, what is the Venn diagram between these these complainers and the incel community? Is that I, like I, a I perfect? A pretty, perfect. Yeah, it's it's a it's a circle. Does it look like sorts, a breast? Yeah. That Venn diagram? Is that Venn, I mean. I mean, you know, there there are like legitimate censorship complaints. There was yeah, a, there was sure. a game in in China uh, recently that sort of like was was sort of like an interesting little horror game and get, that got like censored to to development hell. Um, and you know, like I, that's not a critique of China ipso facto, but you know, th- it does happen where like interesting political games get like you know absolutely demolished by whatever nation they're being produced in, including the states, like. Um, but yeah, it's it it's an interesting thing to watch because you can sort of like chart a both a material historical moment, which I think is sort of interesting on its own face. But but more nebulously, you can kind of chart the way that you know language and discourse in general can lend itself to and art. I mean, particularly like let's let's be honest, like this is aesthetic dialogue and 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 discourse. Um, can lend itself both to reactionary, which is what we expect, and like progressive and sort of like interesting and 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 unexpected um, uh, moments. And you know the 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 one I always come back to is in shooters where um, we have all these jingoistic military shooters now, but the audience for them does not care even one bit about the patriotic elements. So the patriotic elements fall apart. Um, and they aren't, you know, they aren't convincing as, as, uh, propaganda because like no one cares if it doesn't get you kills. Right. So like at that point it is, it is a totally different thing and it breaks apart. And so like, I think, you know, there's no, I purposely didn't include like a, you know, a good ending. Like here's how we stop capitalism in the book, because I read so many academic monographs that say how that's going to happen. And it's always depressing. It's always like I ran out of ideas and now I have to come up with a conclusion or else my publisher is going to be mad at me. So uh, here's what we do. (laughs) And I was like, I'm not doing that. Um, I think, I think it's honestly like observing like a material reality where something that is meant to be regressive becomes progressive, even among hundreds of other examples where it goes the other way. It's fascinating. It's like a little seed of possibility. And I think, I think that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, Right. For sure. I mean, at the very least, I I remember back in the day, even like the debates about the internet, whether it was good or bad. And you had like, you know, Clay Shirky, I remember making a point uh, a long time ago that was interesting that um, at least with (laughs) 
Web 2.0, it was called back in the day, right? Like, oh yeah, th- th- this that's is, when they added like, gradients on all the logos. <laughs> you know, the, the the shift from the kind of atomizing world where you know, with uh, white flights, uh, suburbs, and everything, people are on their own, just watching TV, and it's kind of like the the TV is coming at them, but they're not connecting with anyone else in the world, really. And then the internet suddenly, with social uh, networking and then gaming and so forth. People are, are maybe in different parts of the world, but now actually they're reconnecting and interacting in a way. And, and then gaming all the more is a kind of uh, additional subject formation opportunity where people individually and collectively can create worlds. They can, they can realize possibilities and their power. And that, there's something more active that for somebody like me, who is the kind of leftist where like we need, you know uh, – <laughs> Politics that looks like people uh, realizing their p- collective power and doing things mm-hmm. together, right? Like yeah. that, that has to be something people are habituated into and that, that like, that they're used to that and understand the complications, obstacles, uh, frustrations. I mean, now we're seeing DS- DSA fights and all kinds of stuff uh, as normal on, on, on Twitter. DSA and, like, fights? <laughs> I've never heard of that, right? Well, that's wow. the first time. Yeah. <laughs> Don't tell me no, you got but, it to the steering but like, committee. We have to learn how to not be assholes together, yeah. right? Like we have yeah. to learn to be comrades and to like work through tough things. And so I don't know. I, I do think there is something to the fact that if people are spending their free time, not just like alone watching uh, Netflix, but actually are uh, involved in a way in, 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 in this kind of interactive uh, sense, even if sometimes it's reactionary, at least the muscles are being kind of uh, exercise and they're not atrophying yeah. that, that we're going to need. Right. Yeah, to, to, yeah, no. to specify that, I mean, uh, a little bit more, uh, talk to, talk to us about MMOs. Um, oh, you know, yeah, sure. that, like that would be just an absolute instantiation of what you were just talking about, Alexi, like a massively multiplayer online role-playing game, you know? So like you have your guy and he's, you know, you're playing with lots of other people. And like, so if you want to defeat like the, the biggest boss, you know, you have to get up together. You have to organize with, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, 10, 20, sometimes even like 50 or 60 people, you know, to, to together and you have to like coordinate, you have to, you know, you have to make a, a guild or a union, you know, you might, you might call it, you know? So, so like, um, um, I mean, this is something, I mean, I remember when I was uh, living in New York city, uh, 2009, that was 20,000 years ago. I, I was playing a lot of world of Warcraft, uh, yeah. and, and, you know, this was like, I was working at a grocery store in the, in the Washington Heights, making like $200 a week. Uh, I was broke as shit as the phrase yeah. goes, but like Warcraft was like a substitute community, you know, like substitute community. And also like something I could do, which seemed like I was sort of moving forward in the world. You know, I think this is sort of accounts for a lot of the addictiveness of these games. You know, it gives you like a. Uh, sort of a ball to chase. Um, yeah. But it was like, I had friends, you know, I had goals. I had, I had, I had things. If I did the right thing, then, then like I would get rewarded instead of just like yeah. doing the same thing. And it, it wasn't alienated labor at least. Yeah, right? exactly. You know, it was like, it was exciting. Um, I returned to that in like 2018 for a while. I just sort of booted up. Wow. Just out of curiosity for a few, few months. And it just, it wasn't the same. You know, they have sort of uh-huh. removed most of the community elements. In your book, you write about Final Fantasy XIV a lot. And so yeah. maybe, yeah, I don't know. Like, 
whether it's MMOs or not, like the 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 possibility of sort of like uh, inculcating as unions do. I mean, sort of the, the unions are the churches of leftism. You know, like mm-hmm. how how this may uh, be. Uh, p- uh, politically sort of valuable uh, to have these sort of different, you know, these these uh, 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 ways of interacting with each other. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that I think is is interesting about the difference between 2009 and 2018, um, years I also remember uh, for my sins, uh, <laughs> you know, like in Final Fantasy, well, Final Fantasy 14 was like sort of uh, not really a game or not a game at all in, in 2009, but you know, MMO organization in those days was much more reliant on kind of messier solutions for organizing, for lack of a better word. Like you had to find people, you had to sort of join a guild, you had to, you know, be online at a certain time. Whereas like if you look at Final Fantasy fourteen now, like they're actually streamlining it so that you can play most of it single player because like it's a it's a, a super interesting game. And so like they want more people to experience it. And that it you know isn't that the the classic double edged sword of of convenience technology in the neoliberal era uh, makes things easier but allows more access uh, also kind of wrecks the 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 community we have and and sometimes that's a feature and not a bug right um, and that's not a dig against against anything that's a, a providing accessibility for people who need it I think that's that's great and like you know if there are people out there who you know are absolutely terrified of playing an MMO but can experience the story in Final Fantasy fourteen. I think that's a positive. It's a it's a great RPG, but you know one of the things I I felt the most community in uh, was uh, the Eureka area, which I talk about in the book in, in fourteen, which is just this like it's a mindless grind. It's 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 so like I can't recommend anyone play it other than like it's also uh, like my favorite part of the game in some ways. Um, you know, it is terms of plot or like whatever. It's it's not, but you know when you're there. You're essentially talking in a chat box with a bunch of people and they'll say like, oh, hey, uh, big monster over here and everyone will run to it. Right. And they'll, they'll go there and they're like, does anyone have a fate train? Can I join a train? And you join a, a party and they go all around the map and you follow them. And there are these people you, you'll never meet again unless you go back to Eureka and sometimes they're on and you'll say, oh, hello. Like, can I join your fate train? Um and, you know, like people will let you hop on their mounts and drive you to places and be like, oh, do you need to unlock this? Like there are enemies up here that'll kill you. I'll drive you in my car. So that doesn't happen. Um, and then when you get to like the sort of like final raid, you have to join in or- the only way you can ever do it is to join a discord uh, and like basically sign up on a Google spreadsheet to like find a time that works for you to be part of this group because it's like eight groups of I think it's like, yeah, it's eight groups of eight that need to like enter in at exactly the same time and be like, you know, exactly the right makeup. It It is wild. Like it's, it's so complicated and so pointless. Like it's, it is, it is impossible to do. So most <laughs> people don't do it, but if you take the time to do it, it is really, it, it feels like you're building some sort of like interesting community. And then, and that's a kind of socializing that we don't have a lot of, right? Like yeah. a lot of people who are relatively anonymous, um, or at least relatively like disconnected from you yourself as a person who you trust and, and, and work with and do things with and then maybe never see again. And that is like, it's, it's meaningful in a different way. And I think, you know, the benefit of MMOs and, and in fact, like to take something very, very recent, like something like Elden Ring, right? Uh, the game everyone's playing now. I'm, I'm playing it too. Like, um, you know, like the, the, these games, uh, provide a shared aesthetic experience where 
we all get to sort of mm. see the same thing at the same time, experience the same thing or similar things. And in fact, even better that it's similar, not the same. There are differences in everyone's playthrough, right? There are things that stand out to you as opposed to others because, in fact, you take in the content differently. And both of those games, open world games, are the same way this way. And this kind of creates a community that is bound by sort of a shared aesthetic passion, mm. which is something that is like tenuous, but also like different, right? It's not, it's not political in a specific way. It's not social in a specific way. It can backfire as a result. You can start like really getting along with someone and then find out they're a fascist like that. You know, <laughs> yeah. These things can happen. I hate when that happens. Yeah. It's rough, yeah. you know, yeah. but yeah. Uh, you have to look yourself in the mirror and say, is this a, is this a me problem? Uh, but uh, <laughs> and no, it's not. But, you know, that that kind of opens up that that kind of community as well outside of the like hyper specific sort of like uh, I I can do a spreadsheet about my character sort of way. Like you're experiencing it and you're kind of like enjoying it with people asynchronously. You know, you you might come up against some fan art later and really, oh, now I get this. this is so cool. Like that sort of group of appreciation that is not based on like, you know, um on-demand television or film, but in fact, as a participatory medium is at the very least quite interesting. And, and, you know, at the it most, is, yeah. I think, I think sort of like a vaguely emancipatory sort of approach. It, it reminds me, Trevor, of a few things. So I'm thinking a few things. Mm-hmm. Here. One, one is it, it, it reminds me of the kind of, um, you know, no, Noam Chomsky gave lie to the idea that the average American is too dumb to understand the complexities of politics. He says, uh, look how complicated football, American football, if, if somebody doesn't know American football, uh, you know, how, explaining how that works to them. And then look at the, how the average American who loves football understands the intricacies. Like, don't oh, give yeah. me that bullshit that Americans can't understand complex things. They'd have to be motivated. They have to care. But mm-hmm. then they could really understand. Anyone can understand complex things. So it reminds right, me right. that this is another in- instance of that. Right. And then. Yep. And two, the, the social really matters and, and aesthetics, I think, really matter. A shared aesthetic really brings people together. Um, and, and I almost wonder if there aren't parallels. Like in some sense, lefties have principles, of course, that they share. But like there's a shared aesthetic going on, I think, when people love like the image of Bernie Sanders looking grumpy, you know, that picture on yeah, Inauguration yeah, Day, sure. you know, yeah. or, or right. Like or the little birdie or or like there there are some aesthetics going on here that 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 uh, relate to how we come together on the left. And so I don't know. So, so those two things, the fact that we have the capacity uh, in terms of dealing with complex challenges and we just have to f- remember the ways that we come together and bond and the ways that that maybe aesthetics and. And I don't know, narrative or, or what other thoughts do you have about yeah. like the, the things that we can apply, right? No, I, I think you're right. And I think like, you know, it, it you can even take, I, I saw like a, uh, an old like 1901 or whatever cartoon on Twitter just before we started recording with like, you know, like the the sort of like Eugene Debsey sort of like union guy lecturing uh, an old capitalist sort of looking like Scrooge at a desk writing down, right? And like, you know, it, it's the exact sort of thing that gets liked and shared a bunch wherever it goes among a certain, like, you know, the, the same group of people, but I liked it. I, I, you know, favorite. I, yeah, it's great. It's, yeah. It's exactly what I want to see. Like, show me more of this. Um, and, and the reason for it, I think is because like it, it has the sort of anger and pessimism and sort of like, I won't say like those cartoons don't necessarily have the disgust, but it certainly has the anger and the pessimism and, and the, the desire for something more built into it. Yeah. But it's also not that nitty gritty element of like, okay, you are arguing 
a specific thing about like policy on like a union. Like you're not for anyone who's been in like a union meeting. um, It is, it is extraordinarily. um, uh, And I'm specifically thinking about um, negotiation. Like it is, it is extremely enervating. Like it is hard. Like it is, your focus is tested. You have to be like focused on these like, minutia yep. that you never thought you'd care about like oh a two-year contract versus a five like why do i care like by the end of it you're like oh i super care and, okay and fine. plus the how cerebral it is draws you out of the affective bonds which keep right. you caring right like the fact that you're angry the fact that exactly. it's not fair like all those yep. things and and so that's the danger of, of getting too cerebral to begin right. with right right and then, then like so the you know it's it again it's it's that it's that dialectic where like the cerebral are sort of like you know uh, i'm taking now notes i'm like i'm i'm right and bylaws it corresponds with the with the feeling one gets when when you see something that's sort of a shared aesthetic or a shared artistic or, or something even like even if it's niche like something that you and a group of people that you find you agree with politically enjoy like that is that's the moment where you're just like oh, okay that's like that's that effective feeling like this this sort of puts into context my cerebral ideas or, or, or like the things that I'm, yeah, you know, right. all of a sudden I know why I'm caring about it. It's refreshing. It's a sort of, it's a moment where you totally. can kind of take yeah, what you yeah, have yeah. And, and bring it back. And I think like, you know, that is what's so important about, about aesthetics. It's, it's what's so important about like, you know, trying to understand what you think as like a person and understanding that like, yeah, okay. In the moment, maybe reading a novel isn't political, you know, action. Fine. Like I, sure. I agree with you. It's not political action. Um, however, like it also is not useless. It's not pointless. It can be very use. It can be right. very like informative to your own, you know, growth as a person. And like, I think that is something that, you know, not to say that video games necessarily have to be part of your growth as a person, but also not to say that they can't be right. It's it, yeah. we put too much, we put too much pressure on, aesthetic things making you grow that are somehow important or valid or something like that, where, you know, it really could be anything. If it sparks something in you and makes you think harder about something and, and more about something, then, you know, it's, it's, it's worthy. It helps. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right on. Is is there anything in that you've observed in the current trend and what's super popular in gaming Mm. that, um, that you think uh, says something about um, where we're at culturally today, what, what people's, I don't know whether it's their fears or, or their, uh, what makes them feel empowered or what, you know, and any kind yeah. of, yeah. Overarching takeaways. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, it would be, it would be weird. It would be like wrong of me to avoid the, the elephant in the room again and, and not point to Elden Ring. I mean, I have the chapter on dark souls, but um, you know, it's hard. It's hard to draw conclusions on Elden Ring in some ways because it is so big. Tell, um, to, one thing, just t- tell us real quick, what is Elden Ring? People may not know. Oh, well, my. Well, uh, <laughs> I know. El- the, oh, I know you know. Uh, Elden Ring is uh, so the Dark Souls games are these uh, essentially fantasy games, uh, dark fantasy games that are uh, notoriously difficult. Um, the, the, the idea of them being notoriously difficult is what draws a lot of people to them um, and also creates some of the most uh, irritating discourse about them. Uh, we don't have to rehash that, but I do write a lot about it in the book. Um, but the, you know, one of the things that uh, the Dark Souls games are not are that they're not particularly open world. They sort of are like 
the open world games have the entire map essentially open to you if you can like you know avoid enemies enough or you know survive long enough or whatever whereas most uh most dark souls games are most of the souls games are like okay you know you can go certain places and you can you can explore like you can you can but there are like areas that are basically gate kept until you do one thing or the other. Right. Uh, so they're a little more meted out. Whereas Elden Ring is the first game that is truly just like, okay, go wherever you want. Um, and it's a souls game. And, and, you know, it's, it's very similar that way. It's, you know, it's hard. You have to dodge a lot. You die a lot. You sort of like have to bang your head against the wall. Um, and I don't know, like part of me thinks you know, sort of, sort of just like say it for the first time anywhere. Uh, my, my worry about Elden Ring is that it is too on the nose. Like it's a studio that, Take Metal Gear Solid, for instance, Metal Gear Solid 3 started, was disappointing to me because it understands what fans like about its main character and leans into it extremely hard. And that is not a good way to do aesthetics. That's a good way to make like to do like a say the line Bart sort of thing. Um, and I'm worried that Elden Ring is saying the line too much like, oh, we got the hard boss. Oh, he's on a horse now. Oh, yeah. Wonder if you can beat this guy. Um, <laughs> on the other hand. You know, when I'm not feel, and I I like the game a lot. Like you know, it sort of is outside of its quality. Um, the other thing that I find interesting about it, though, is like I see people in the No Cartridge Discord talking about it, and they're comparing notes. And I see people sort of like showing videos of it and like making jokes about it, and like being like, "Oh, can I DM you about like this thing I found? Like, can you help me out with it?" And it is like it's a very collaborative experience, and like. You know, I don't know if that's going to change as it gets older or if that's something that people will constantly sort of have like little groups that they talk about with it. It's interesting that way. It's the first time I've really seen the game talked about as if it was like, you know, an active sort of social puzzle to to, to unravel. Um, the other thing I've been seeing a lot of, and I, I mentioned this in the epilogue, but I think it's I think it's true and more and more true is that people are more willing to engage with like text heavy games. To the point that like visual novels and things like that are not out of the realm of possibility um, for for mainstream gamers, uh, as, as can be seen, like the Danganronpa series and stuff like that. Like these are very, very popular. Um, and, you know, there's something very interesting about the way that games deal with text and textuality, um, where these games are not quite books and not quite games. And there's something like sort of that exceed both at the same time. Mm. Um, and I find that like the the appetite for gamers to have more difficult narratives and more complex narratives either because they have less text in the case of Elden Ring or more text in the case of a visual novel uh outstrips the appetite of like um you know a lot of Americans to read a book uh like a novel or um you know watch like a, a truly like cerebral television show or something like that and that's not an insult to americans like i i also have that problem i'm exhausted yeah, at the yeah. end of the day with kids but video games sure. like video games kind of tickle a different itch and so like i think that's really compelling that kind of like complexity can sneak in through the back door that way um and i think many games are sort of trying to approach that um you know t to go back to what you said about japanese games uh earlier like Elden Ring's the first game in a long time to to sell as many copies as it has from a, a Japanese developer. Um and you know it is it is more imaginative and and kind of different than what we'd see in the states. So I'm hmm. I'm very curious to see how that how that evolves. And of course, you know, I'm curious to see what independent games do too. That's always a, a very vital and 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 strange and you know, uh illustrative space. Um it's also a little more like on the nose with its political claims, so needs what, less what? Explica explication <laughs> by me. 
Well, what's the most sweeping statement I can make that's not ridiculous? Because I'm hearing and I'm so <laughs> cool. ignorant of the industry. I'm, no, no, I'm excited for this like, one. <laughs> it's no, it's it sounds like uh, more patience, more acceptance of complexity, or interest in challenges and interactivity. Because you're talking about um, different types of complexity, different types of challenges. Sure. I, I'm just thinking of like the kind of qualities that that reflects in the people that are interested in, in, in playing the games. Right. And uh, as opposed to like a, a game where you're not really pushed or challenged and you can kind of just relax and unwind or, or zone out or just be scared or, or just to have a prime emotion or something that you like. Right? So, so is there something you can say about like these yeah. games that are super popular and, and how, uh, what it says about the people playing them? Right. You know, I think I think it's like it's interesting because even the games that are sort of casual or, or easy or something like that often require a, a a level of discipline that that is not particularly that's recognized. good, right? That yeah. sounds good for the left. Discipline, yeah, no, like sure. pa- patience, right? Like recognizing <laughs> no, the complexities. You know, you're right. Like there, there's a there's a there's a trend recently of it's at least happened twice. Uh, I read a, a small little article on it, but there's a trend recently of um, people finding out that like uh, you know there's a fighting game streamer basically. So like fighting games, if you ever watch people who play fighting games, fascinating. Like, you should, like I I encourage everyone when when COVID is at an acceptable point or when we've all just decided that we love our death drive too much, uh, <laughs> you know, to go to a fighting game competition because it is yeah. fascinating to watch people at the top of their game there because they are just like it is. It's like someone playing an instrument. It's like the skill. Yeah, yeah, virtuosos. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. And you know, there was a there was a fighting game streamer who was playing Tetris ninety nine when it came out, which uh, was a, a game for the Switch, where basically you could compete with people for Tetris. Right? You could like there were ninety nine Tetris games going on, and, and you just like tried to stay alive long enough to reach number one, uh, sort of like Texas or Tetris uh, uh, Battle Royale. Um, and this guy couldn't get up past fifteen, and so he he let his wife try. And it turned out she was like the best Tetris player in the world. And so there, there, are, these, there are all these wives who are just not only wives, but like particularly women gamers who are who just pick up Tetris every so often. Like it's just the game they'll pick up on their phone or, you know, like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just bored. I'll play, I'll play some Tetris. And it turns out they have become like extraordinary at it. Right. Um same goes with like uh, a, a visual novel. Like you'll you'll talk to people who play those, and it's just like it doesn't take skill to click through. Um, but people will spend, you know, hundreds of hours reading these series, like as long as it would take to read, you know, your uh, uh, various wars and pieces and stuff like that. And they're drawing like extraordinarily complex ideas from it. Like it turns out these are really like well written and interesting things. Um, or like you take like even people who don't have a particularly like narrative interest um the the amount of like sort of like cooperation camaraderie memorization of like tactics and 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 language and communication and stuff like that in things like Rainbow Six Siege or Fortnite or you know competitive shooters in general like if you talk to people who like played um Command and Conquer back not Command and Conquer um uh I I always forget the name of this but like uh, um Counter-Strike uh back in the day you you won't hear from people who you won't hear them ever talk the way they do about that. Like those people, like the, the, the amount of like respect and like admiration they have for like the time they spent, like basically in the trenches with these people. And there's a way to make fun of that. Right. But there's also sort of the recognition that it's like, yeah, you spent a lot of time honing some skill with people. And I think, you know, right. 
as as we so like I guess the the biggest left claim I could I can draw that I really believe in about video games is you know as especially during covid as we've realized that a lot of the you know quote unquote like soft skills or skills that we've used to to get jobs or hold jobs or keep jobs or whatever um have become more and more obviously fake um you know, like as as we sort of like recognize that skilled labor is is one thing, and uh, you know what David Graeber, um, who uh, rest in peace to to David Graeber, um, yep. you know, called bullshit jobs. Uh, not that they're not taxing or or difficult in their own way. I, I have a bullshit job; it's taxing and difficult, but it's different, right? Like you can't you can't say that the skill is useful in a way that you're just like ipso facto useful. I think as people are realizing this, as they're working from home and realizing like, oh, this is like, this is like not as useful as it seemed in the office, that, that taboo on learning something or practicing something or working on something quote unquote useless is going away. And, and Mm -hmm. that is, that's good. That's a big leftist win. I would say like, if we can start valorizing things that are useless um, and understanding how important they can be, I think that's a, a huge deal. Yeah. Amen, brother. And uh, the one last thing I'll say is this reminds me of our friend David Kybe. He likes to, to quote a uh, labor organizer, General Baker, who said, we need to turn thinkers into fighters and fighters into thinkers. So maybe we need to turn uh, fighters into gamers and gamers into fighters as well, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, honestly, you know, it's the military. <laughs> If we can, if we can, if we can change some of the, yeah, no, I, yeah, we, I think so. We need to hurt. We need We're, to turn, uh, you know, healers into tanks, and tanks into DPS, and DPS into healers. <laughs> you know, and- until until we can just like until we can, uh, you know, make a make a uh, turn all the swords into Az- of Azeroth into plowshares. It's just like once once the Lich King is gone, we'll be able to do it. Uh, Trevor Strunk, well, uh, the game. Uh, the game, the book, is called oh, Story oh, Mode, look at that. Video Games and the Interplay Between Consoles and Culture. Uh, we're going to link to that in the show notes. Um, I believe it's available again. It was it was sold out for a while, but it's, it's back. No I shit. Believe, wow. Congratulations. Briefly. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's uh, it, it sold better than I, I was hoping even. It's, you know... A, you know, point point of order. I come from academia, where like five hundred books sold is like <laughs> is like unheard of. You're, you're essentially like you know, uh, uh, you're essentially like Stephen King at that point. Yeah. So I didn't have high expectations, but they've been surpassed. So yeah, well, you know, well done, well done, sir. It's all, Thank you. That's all. You know, success is about where you set your bar for for clearing. <laughs> I love setting a low bar. Yeah. You know. But um, yeah, we'll we'll link to that. You know, uh, I I just finished it this afternoon. I think it's it. I mean, if you're interested in video games at all, that's sort of a precondition, I would think. But if I you mean, are, if even I, the ignoramus that I am, enjoyed it as much as I did, I gotta imagine if anyone's ever played a video game, that they'll enjoy it. So I've I've heard like I, I I'm not I'm not you know I I would never say who this should appeal to or shouldn't I I'm not qualified, but um. I've heard from people who don't play games that they they still got a lot out yeah. of it. So it, it could still it could still hit you pretty hard if you if you even if you don't play games. I, I like to think I provide enough context. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. And for those who do, what what is uh, your podcast, sir? And, and oh, how my people podcast can is find called that? No Cartridge. Um, we have all sorts of people on. We talk about. Um, I mean, honestly, sometimes we don't even talk about video games. It's just like <laughs> we have devs on. We have yeah. fans. We have journalists. Just you know, talking about essentially 
the aesthetics that they deal with, the sort of like, uh, you know, if, it, if it's a labor, we've had like uh, games union people on, we've talked about, uh, you know, labor issues there or aesthetic issues or politics or kind of whatever they want. Um, and that's right uh, that's where this book is. I mean, if you like the way the book is, you'll like the podcast because a lot of the a lot of the ideas stem from my thinking on the podcast. But yeah, no, check that out. Cool. Right on. Thanks for joining us, Trevor. It's a pleasure. Thanks, you guys. No, this is great. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you in the next episode.